how to grow spiritually, how to make our souls stronger and stronger. God gives us a training program for a life of spiritual health. It's hard to find a place in Scripture any more clear on what this program consists of than our text today. So before we read the Scripture, let me add just one more thing. The, the general goal from this program is, is health, spiritual health, but there's a more specific goal in mind as well. The specific goal is something we all seek, but only a few find. That something is joy, true joy. Joy not defined as a fleeting feeling, but as an inner reality. Joy as a state of being. Joy as a 24-7 attitude. That's the joy in Jesus, and that's the joy God wants for us, and that's the joy this training program promises to lead us to. So here is the regimen for joy. Listen for God's word from the book that we love, Philippians 4, starting with verse 2. Loved ones, I urge Eudea and I urge Syntyche to come to an agreement in the Lord. Hold on. Stop right there. I thought Paul was giving us a regimen for joy, and he begins by talking about church conflict. What's this about? Friends, I think what this is about is that Paul is grounding his discussion on joy in the real-life struggles you and I face. We all have difficult relationships, don't we? We all experience difficult conversations, or at least we should, but we avoid them. We know what it's like to be overwhelmed in our minds and anxious in our hearts. We know what it's like to get a phone call and our heart starts racing and we can feel the blood coming through our neck. Paul knows this experience too. He's in prison, remember, as he's writing these words. So before giving us the secret to joy, Paul first feels the need to speak quite candidly about conflict in the church between two women, and he even calls them out by name. So right off the bat, we should be clued into the fact that joy does not mean the absence of difficulties, challenges, and valleys. Rather, by the grace of God, joy is possible even in the valleys of life. How can this be? Let's keep on reading. Loved ones, I urge Eudea and I urge Syntyche to come to an agreement in the Lord. Yes, and I'm also asking you, loyal friend, to help these women who, who have struggled together with me in the ministry of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the scroll of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness, your graciousness, show in your treatment of all people the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. Rather, bring up all your requests to God in your prayers and petitions, along with giving thanks. Then the, the peace of God, which exceeds all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. From now on, brothers and sisters, if anything is excellent and if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. All that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. Practice these things. Whatever you 
learned, received, heard, or saw in us, the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Pray, focus, practice. Bring all your requests to God in prayer. Focus your thoughts on these things and practice these things. Pray, focus, practice. This, I believe, is the regimen for joy that derives from God's word to us this morning. So let's deal with each in turn. First, pray. I'll give Larry some time to get his notes out. <laughs> Anybody else is welcome to join Larry. He just does this to uh, kind of uh, try to win brownie points with me, but I do appreciate it. It is. <laughs> First, pray. According to Paul, prayer is the proper response to the inner angst we all feel from time to time. The nagging anxiety, the stuff that keeps us up at night, the 3 a.m. sleep interrupter, how do we deal with it? According to Paul, we pray very specifically for the things that are on our minds. My friends, prayer is the Xanax for the soul. It's no accident that this verse was actually the first ver verse that I ever uh, uh, memorized as a kid. If I can just be uh, honest with you, uh, I was an anxious kid growing up. Some of you know my anxiety was born from the, the troubles of a speech impediment and the way kids responded to that. So I was able actually to, to hide my anxiety pretty well from the public. Maybe you know a thing about that. So even, uh, even for myself, I was able to hide my anxiety. Denial was my go-to drug of choice during those days, for, and, and that was my way of dealing with the anxiety. It took the edge off most of the time. But you know what? We can only lie to ourselves for so long. As I lay my head down at night as a teenager, I often struggled to fall asleep, in large part because all of the negative emotions that I had suppressed throughout the day came rushing to the forefront of my mind. Anxiety was the pillow I tried to sleep on many, many days. Perhaps you too know what it's like to try to fall asleep on the pillow of anxiety. Then I came across this most beloved letter in the Bible, Philippians, in my little, uh, uh, little FCA Bible that I had. I took delight in these words, and I rehearsed them over and over again until they etched their way in my memory. Do, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you don't know it, I'd encourage you to know it. I'm confident that God's Spirit will work deeply within you as you spend these words in your mind. Ruminate on God's word, not on worst-case scenarios. And the peace of God will keep guard over the castle of your heart. Like a, this is a military term he uses, so like a, a squadron of soldiers protecting the most valuable possession. That's how God will keep guard over your heart. Now, I'll give you a warning. You know how every drug advertised has a long, long list of warnings attached to it that make you wonder, well, I don't even think it's worth it now. <laughs> Prayer truly is Xanax for the soul. It's the anti-anxiety 
antidote, but it comes with a warning. It's actually more like a part of the instruction label. You have to take it a certain way, otherwise your anxieties could actually get worse. You could pray and then think to yourself, well, I prayed about it and I don't feel any better, and, and God doesn't seem to be doing much about it. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with God? Now we're in a worse spot than we were before we started praying about whatever made us anxious. Lord knows I've experienced this more than once. So we've got to read the instruction label first. Prayer is the Xanax for the soul, but prayer must be taken with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. It's such a brief little note in this passage, and if we read it too fast, we'll miss it, but it's there, and it's important. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Without thanksgiving, our litany of concerns becomes nothing more than a wish list. God gets domesticated to the role of a, of a personal genie who exists to make us happy. Sometimes we can even think we deserve this. We deserve for our prayer request to be heard and answered in just the way we think God ought to answer them, because God owes us. We've earned this through our impressive religious performance. That's not the type of prayer that will alleviate anxiety, and it's not the type of God revealed in Jesus Christ, who told us quite bluntly, in this world, you will have troubles. In this world, you and I will have plenty of troubles and grief and struggles and disappointments and failures, but take heart, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world. I have overcome all of those things so that there is joy on the other side. Even in the midst of it, there is peace, the peace of God that we can't figure out on our own. So that's the first exercise in the regimen of joy. Pray. Pray with thanksgiving. Present to God all your requests, large ones, tiny ones, even ones that may seem selfish. Give them all to God and do so in a spirit of thanksgiving. Do so with open hands. This is hard. (laughs) Let them go as you pray. Don't try to control the outcome of what God will do with your prayers. You hear me there? (laughs) Sometimes we use prayer as a way to try to stay in control of things. I'm guilty, too. But that's not the Jesus way of praying. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. We pray, and we release all things to the control of God, who loves us. If we do it like that, God will keep our hearts safe. God will keep our minds safe, safe, from the attacks of anxiety and all the unknowns and uncertainties and chances of life. Let me just say, that's, that's the type of prayer Joanne Kaiser has been praying these last few days. And despite her suffering, I can report to you that she's experiencing the peace of God. She told me that she had read the letter to the Philippians as we've been going through the series, and, and even as we were talking, she, she could rehearse it with confidence. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. <laughs> the peace of God is guarding her heart, because she's learned how to pray 
with thanksgiving, letting go of the outcome, trusting in the goodness and care of God. My friends, God invites us to pray and let go and and see where the wind of God takes it from there. That's exercise number one, pray. Exercise number two and the regimen for joy is this, focus. Listen to verse eight again. From now on, brothers and sisters, if anything is excellent and if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. All that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. Pray with thanksgiving, that's the first exercise, and focus is the second. Did you know that you have power over your mind? You can't control other people's minds, unfortunately, but you can control yours. Do you know that? <laughs> Believing it is the first step to doing it. I approach scripture with the assumption that if God tells us to do something, God will be the one who gives us the power to do it. That it's actually possible to do whatever God says to do in scripture. Is this how you approach the Bible? So what does God give us the power to do? God gives us the power to focus our thoughts on God's goodness throughout creation. Whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is true, whatever is holy, whatever is good, God empowers us to focus our attention on everything that is good, beautiful, and true. The Greek verb here for focus is the word lagizeste, It means a lot more than just to keep in mind. It's possible not only to keep in mind from time to time the good things in life, but it's actually possible to to center our attention on God's goodness in the world, in the actual world we live in. I submit to you that God's goodness can literally be seen all over the place, but we really must focus. I had a picture up here that I snapped on Friday morning. I'll just describe it to you. I was on my way to work, and uh, I saw something curious happening kind of in the, um, you know, in the grassy area between the, the street. I was turning from Schuyler to Sagamore, and I noticed a cop, and he was on the ground, and he was doing something with this lady's car, and the trunk was open, and I was curious. He, what I eventually noticed was he was changing her spare tire, uh, the woman in the picture, she's, she's smiling. She's an African-American woman. And he's cranking the jack, and he's putting on, the sm- putting on the spare, and they're making small talk. Now, one could say that's just an ordinary event on a Friday morning. So what? <laughs> that's often my attitude, too, when I see things like this, and usually I pass on by without taking a second glance. I think because this scripture passage was in my mind, seeing this just really moved me for some reason. Are you ever surprised by your tears? (laughs) To me, seeing this illustrated Paul's point beautifully. Here is this officer using using his power the way Christ used his power, laying it down to empower others, to serve others in humility, to lift others out of an unfortunate situation, to bring a smile of joy, to someone who otherwise would be having a pretty bad day by the looks of it. Now contrast this this picture with the pictures we usually see on the news. 
portraying police officers and African Americans. You see where I'm going with this. What we're usually shown is conflict and tension and hatred and violence. And the newscasters, the interpreters of the situation, explain what's going on in whatever way they feel is most favorable to their viewers. But what if what we see on the news is a disproportionately negative representation of what's actually going on in the world? Of course there is bad stuff going on, and listen to me, we should pay attention to the injustices of the world. Don't get me wrong. Based on the, the witness of the biblical prophets, we ought to pay attention to what's wrong and unjust in the world. We should do so not just so we're in the know, but so we can pray about it, so we can listen for ways that we might be contributing to, contributing to the problem and confess this to God and change our ways. We should pay attention to what's wrong in the world so we can listen for God's direction on how we should respond as the church to promote the good of others and the praise of Jesus' name. That being said, as I read verse 8, I have the same leaning as the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Listen to his commentary on this verse, verse 8. He writes this, the command in verse 8 to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here runs directly opposite to the habits of mind instilled by the modern media. Read the newspapers. Their stock in trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious, and blameworthy. Is that a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the Creator if you feed your mind only on the places in the world which humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given to be legitimately pleased with and to enjoy and celebrate? Exercise one in the regiment for joy, pray. Exercise two, focus. Focus on all the good and wonderful things that God is doing in the world. Exercise three, practice. Listen to verse nine again. Practice these things. Whatever you learned, received, heard, and saw in us. That's a bold thing to say, my friends, but Paul says it. It's tempting to read into it a hint of pride. Who does Paul think he is telling people to do everything, everything just like he does them? This, uh, this voice of skepticism that, uh, that we find within us, it makes sense in our own day. It makes sense because we, we've learned about countless shameful acts of church leaders. If you pay attention to world news, the Pope's visit to Ireland only stirs up the memories of all the abuse that took place there not so long ago. Even in our own backyard, we recently heard news of yet another megachurch pastor, this one in the suburbs of Chicago, taking advantage of his power and position and abusing it and abusing others for his own pleasure. Lord, have mercy. So how can Paul, a man in authority, tell the church in Philippi to imitate him? 
What if he's just another one of those corrupt leaders at the top? Well, the truth of the matter is that we don't actually have access to the intentions of others. We don't really know what Paul is thinking as he tells others to imitate him. Think about it. Someone does something that ticks you off, and you usually assume the worst of their intentions, right? They did this to get back at me, or they did this because they don't like me, or they did this because they're a jerk. (laughs) We don't actually know why people do what they do. Maybe they cut you off because they have a pregnant wife and they're rushing her to the hospital. We don't know. So the same is true here. We don't actually know what's in Paul's heart as he encourages others to imitate him. Is there pride? We don't know. But we do know that his letter to the church was well received. In fact, it was received so well that eventually it was elevated to the status of holy scripture by the consensus of the church, guided by the Holy Spirit. So that being the case, so many people affirming Paul's character, I think we can assume that Paul's intent here is not to applaud himself for how good and religious he is, imitate me because I'm awesome. I don't think Paul is even thinking about himself at all. (laughs) Remember, Paul is chained to a Roman guard as he writes this, and miraculously, he's caught up in a spirit of joy. The only way this makes sense to me is that Paul is not thinking about himself at all. Instead, I think Paul is thinking only about the church in Philippi. He desires only their well-being, even their joy, And he knows that their well-being and their 24-7 joy, it comes from living and loving like Jesus. This Jesus has taken control of Paul's life. The Spirit of God has worked within him. This is the man who once killed Christians. God has taken that man and through God's power fashioned him after the likeness of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, with the intent of God doing the same thing and everyone else. He says, practice whatever you've learned, received, heard, or saw in us. To practice something is to go to work, day in and day out, sometimes failing, sometimes falling, but never giving up. And the result is continual progress toward the joy That's found in Jesus. Let's practice, my friends, whatever we see in Paul's life through his writings in the New Testament. Let's practice, my friends, whatever we see in the life of Jesus written in the Gospels. And let's practice and imitate whatever Christ-like models God has given to us in our own lives. Let's learn from them, do what they do, pray like they pray, and Focus on what they focus, yeah? One final word. What makes all of this possible? What makes this experience of of joy, this joy as a state of being, this joy that surpasses circumstances, what makes this joy possible is the nearness of God. God's nearness makes this possible. The Lord is near, Paul interjects somewhat awkwardly before verse 6, 
it, reading it, it, it strikes you, what is that doing there? <laughs> but I think it's there because Paul knows that it's only because the Lord Jesus is near, close at hand, even working within us, as Paul said earlier in chapter 2, it's only because the Lord is near that we can find our way closer and closer to the joy of Jesus. The Lord is near. We cannot take up this regimen on our own, and I mean we really cannot. It's not possible because the Lord is near. For the Christian, the presence of Christ is inescapable. Christ has taken up residence within us, in our souls, living there through the Spirit. Do you believe that about yourself? Christ is transforming us from the inside out, day by day, empowering us and strengthening us to do what we cannot do for ourselves, which is to take up Paul's regimen for joy. So in the power of Christ, let us do just that, Heartland Community Church. Let's pray with thanksgiving whenever anxiety stirs within. Let's focus on Christ and all the goodness of God's brilliant creation, even while the rest of the world is entranced with darkness. And let's put into practice the tremendous way of life we've seen in others whom God has given us, Christ-like models. Namely, let's put into practice the way of Christ. Amen? Amen. Now we get to experience this Christ who gives himself to us over and over again at his table, at a meal Jesus calls the Lord's Supper.